Let us celebrate with joy in the presence of our Lord and King. Welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Great to have you along with us in this final week before Christmas, just another four days before uh, we welcome the Christ child at the Holy Mass. And um, today we've got a lot of good stuff to talk about. We're going to talk a little later about the reason for the season, which I just mentioned. Also, we're going to take a look at uh, the story of a Catholic convert uh, who shall remain nameless until the next segment. Also going to take a look at a um, beloved holiday special that has been airing for 50 years but almost didn't happen, and lots, lots more. But uh, to begin... It is the final week of Advent, so we're going to look at the gospel that began the week, the fourth Sunday of Advent, which sets the tone for this final um, week before Christmas. So the epistle for the extraordinary form, fourth Sunday of Advent, uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Brethren, people should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. It is of no importance to me if I am to be judged by you or by any human court. I do not even judge myself. I personally have nothing on my conscience, but that does not mean that I am innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the appointed time until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will disclose the motives of all hearts. Then each one will receive the proper praise from God. So what have we here? First, how priests should be regarded by the faithful. The Church wants to inspire us uh, with respect and veneration towards our priests. They are ministers of Christ, dispensers of the mysteries of God, and advocates of religion. The scripture says that presbyters, priests, who do their duty well should be considered deserving of a double honor, especially those who labor at preaching and teaching. That's St. Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And our Lord told the apostles, whoever listens to you listens to me, and whoever rejects you rejects me, and whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me. So respect for the successors of the apostles is no small matter. On the other hand, we also see that priests may not administer the holy sacraments just as they please, for they are stewards of Jesus Christ, acting in his name. Therefore, they must always observe his will, which is that they should administer the sacraments for the glory of God and the salvation of souls, that is, the souls of the faithful. They are not permitted to, as Jesus says in Matthew 7, give that which is holy unto dogs or cast their pearls before swine. They should not, therefore, give absolution to those who don't have a a firm resolution to avoid sin in the future, or give Holy Communion to those who are manifestly in a state of mortal sin, uh, for fear that by doing so they would thereby condemn themselves. This is priestly food for thought when the pro-abortion politician presents himself for communion, or the couple in an invalid marriage uh, who wish to receive absolution and communion without correcting their situation. Also, we see that priests should consider it no small matter to be judged by men, or rather they should consider it a small matter to be judged by men, because human beings generally judge by appearances, 
and not by reality. St. Paul says in Galatians 1, If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. And not only priests, but the faithful too. Um, we, we must seek to please God rather than men. It's just plain nonsense to follow all of the stupid and scandalous fads and fashions of the world, whether it's dress or manners or entertainment or much less morals. How foolish to neglect the practice of your religion and, and how foolish and dangerous to your soul to always be asking, what will the world say, rather than, what will my God and Savior say if I do this, that, or the other thing? Finally, St. Paul says, I do not even judge myself. Because even if he could not know how God would judge him, Ecclesiastes 9 verse 1 says, The righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. As to whether they will earn love or hatred, we have no way of knowing. Therefore, St. Paul says, I personally have nothing on my conscience, but that does not mean that I am innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. And so we should examine our conscience uh, thoroughly. And if we find nothing in us which displeases God, we shouldn't uh, consider ourselves better than others. Because my image of myself may be quite different from what I truly am in the eyes of God. And no doubt many people who consider themselves innocent or holy today will be shocked on the day of judgment when they're stripped of all their pretensions and their inmost hearts are laid open, laid bare by God. I think of our Lord's words in Matthew seven twenty-two and 23. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name? Did we not perform miracles in your name? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. This alone should be enough to convince us not to judge before the time, either ourselves or others, because we know even less of their hearts than of our own. So like St. Paul then, let us therefore work out our salvation with fear and trembling. A nice uh, final Advent message there. And now the gospel for the fourth Sunday of Advent in the extraordinary form taken from Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to the son of to John the son of Zechariah in the desert. He journeyed throughout the entire region of the Jordan Valley, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. Every valley shall be filled in and every mountain and hill shall be leveled. The winding roads shall be straightened, and the rough paths made smooth, and all mankind shall see the salvation of God. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. So why is the time at which St. John the Baptist began to preach described in such detail in this Gospel? It's because in that happy year the prophecy of Jacob was fulfilled, and the scepter being taken from Judah 
the long-expected Savior showed himself to to the world and was baptized by John and declared by his heavenly Father to be his beloved Son, whom we should hear. You know, apart from the Gospels, the names of Pontius Pilate and Annas and Caiaphas and Lysanias and all the rest would have been lost to history. But so that this special moment in time should never be forgotten, John the Evangelist describes the precise time and mentions the names both of the spiritual and temporal rulers in Judah to show that the coming of the Messiah did not happen once upon a time or a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, but at a specific time uh, and place amongst real historical people whose names we know. And and, uh, and we know that... uh, because he was their contemporary, right? As he says in John twenty-one twenty-four, this is the disciple who testifies to these things and has written them. And we know that his testimony is true. As St. Peter says, we did not rely upon cleverly concocted myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Rather, we had beheld his majesty with our own eyes. And so this gospel reminds us in the final days of Advent to make sure that the Lord's path is well prepared in our own hearts and to ask our Lord to help us to do what we cannot do by ourselves, that is, to fill up the valley of our own hearts with his grace, to straighten our crooked and weakened will until it conforms to his own, to ask the grace of to soften the rough paths of our mind and to bring low whatever is in us that might impede his way so that he may come to us without any obstacle and enter our hearts and reign in us forever. Amen. You know, Catholics, pardon me, at least liturgically, don't start celebrating Christmas until December the 24th, uh, you know, at midnight. And, and then we have a whole Christmas season when the rest of society is taking down the decorations. We're just getting started. But as I mentioned last week, uh, one thing that I do like about this time of year, um, you know, probably leading up to Christmas, is that I can turn on the radio without worrying about what I'm going to hear because we have a local station that plays Christmas music 24-7 for the whole month of December. <clears throat> and like I said, it's not only is it nice to hear a greater variety of musical styles and artists than usual, but also to hear the holy name of Jesus. Uh, just the other day, I heard Bing Crosby on the radio singing Adeste Fidelis, right, the Latin version of O Come All Ye Faithful. Now, how often do you tune into the, your car radio and hear Bing Crosby, much less Bing Crosby singing a hymn, much less Bing Crosby singing a hymn in Latin? Uh, you know, the, the very fact that a major radio market uh, like Los Angeles has a station playing a month's worth of Christmas music means that millions of people want to hear this music. And that gives us hope. Now, when we come back, we're going to talk about the, uh, the inside scoop behind the uh, Charlie Brown Christmas and also the reason for the season and much more. So stay with us. We'll be right back with lots more No-Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful. I will wager that in your wildest dreams, you don't have the first idea, you could never guess, the two words that I am about to say. Are you ready? Vincent Price. (laughs) Was I right? Vincent Price. Vincent Price has been my favorite actor since I was a boy. And um, maybe my first uh, favorite actor was Rory Rogers, but when I was four years old, I didn't realize that he was an actor. (laughs) I thought Rory Rogers' show was real. But uh, ever since I was a kid, he was cast as George Plantagenet, uh, the Duke of Clarence, in the 1939 film The Tower of London, starring Basil Rathbone. 23 years later, he went on to play the starring role of King Richard III in the remake of The Tower of London in 1962, which was the beginning of my lifelong love of Shakespeare. Of course, Vincent Price is best known for his roles in the Edgar Allan Poe-inspired horror movies of Roger Corman, The Pit and the Pendulum, The Mosque of the Red Death, The Fall of the House of Usher, The Tomb of Lygia, etc., and etc., and yes, there are several more. Um, Before my conversion, the only way that my wife Betty could get me to watch the song of Bernadette is that she told me Vincent Price was in it. And back when I was in high school in the 1970s, I saw Vincent Price do a one-man show, a a full evening lecture uh, at the local college auditorium, uh, an evening with Vincent Price. And he told stories about his acting career and his art collecting and his love of gourmet cuisine. Um, He told, um, uh, you know, anecdotes about the famous people he'd known and, and his world travel. And, of course, he recited The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe. And this is circa 1977, 1978. And he had no special lighting and no music, of course, no PowerPoint or multimedia bells and whistles of any kind. Just a man standing at a podium. And yet he held an audience of 2,500 people virtually spellbound for over two hours with nothing more than his voice. So you can imagine my pleasure as a lifelong fan of Vincent Price, to discover just the other day that we have something special in common. That in 1974, just a a few years before I saw him live, Vincent Price uh, was married in a civil service to actress Carol Brown, who was a Catholic convert. And shortly after their wedding, Vincent started spending every Thursday night away from home. And Carol became concerned about what he was up to, and after some time, unsatisfied with his answers, because apparently he's a brilliant actor but a rotten liar, uh, (laughs) his excuses didn't fly. So Carol demanded that Vincent tell her, be honest with me, what are you doing on Thursday nights? And finally, having uh, uh, stalled her for as long as he could, Vincent came clean and revealed that he was taking instructions in the Catholic faith. And at the age of 63, at St. Vincent's Catholic Church, Hollywood's brilliant and talented master of horror entered the Roman Catholic Church. And this would be the greatest of all the wedding gifts that he could give to his wife, Carol Brown. Now, right now, Richie, if you're ready uh, in there, uh, good. I I would like to play uh, a message from Vincent Price recorded uh, in the days when he played The Saint on NBC Radio. So, Richie, if you can play that for us. 
Ladies and gentlemen, all of us who live in the United States are aware of the spiritual values of American life, our factories and machines and luxuries. But there is another side to American life, a side made up of spiritual values. Our country was founded upon faith in God. In the Declaration of Independence, it states that men were endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights. Thus, religious faith is part of the very foundation of American democracy, and one of our most precious national heritages is freedom of worship. By exercising this freedom, you and your families can enjoy the spiritual pleasures that come with church or synagogue attendance. Moreover, your religious leaders stand ready to give you their help, whether you need personal or family guidance. And if you suffer the loneliness natural to a newcomer to this country, the churches of your faith will welcome you. We all know that without spiritual values, the other advantages of American life have little meaning. Without faith, the family and the community become unstable. Mm. Without faith, the individual denies himself the peace and guidance of religion. The doors of your churches and synagogues are open to you. The freedom to worship as you please is yours. And so America's religious organizations invite you to find yourself through faith and to come to church this week. And may I wish you all a wonderful Christmas and for the world, peace in all the years to come. This is Vincent Price inviting you to join us again next week at this same time. Good night. <laughs> How about that? Now, this was recorded when Vincent was still uh, a Protestant, but it represents the way that most Americans felt when I was a boy. And it shows that once upon a time, a time in living memory, that the National Broadcasting Company thought it a good idea to promote religion rather than to oppose or criticize it. And that's no nonsense. Um, and as long as we're talking about Christmas messages... I want to say a few words uh, about the contribution of a, another Christian in the entertainment media, the late Charles Schultz, the creator of the Peanuts comic strip and arguably uh, the most beloved of all the animated TV specials, A Charlie Brown Christmas. Now, besides uh, Charles Schultz, A Charlie Brown Christmas, and the, the dozens of uh, Peanuts cartoons that followed, were also the product of Lee Mendelssohn, uh, a Jewish producer from San Francisco, and director Bill Melendez, a Mexican-American Catholic who was also the voice of Snoopy. Uh, and as with so many inspired things, A Charlie Brown Christmas almost didn't happen. A, a previous special, a documentary about Charles Schultz uh, and his peanuts had been produced but rejected. And it looked like Charlie Brown and company would never make it to TV. And that is when a sponsor... Coca-Cola, no less, approached them about doing a Peanuts Christmas special. Um, Lee Mendelssohn got the call on a Thursday, and um, Coke wanted to see a treatment by Monday. So he called uh, Charles Schultz with the good news and the bad. He said, Coca-Cola wants us to produce a Charlie Brown Christmas. The bad news, we have to write it tomorrow. <laughs> so the, the network, uh, as it turns out, hated it. 
it would it, it was you know slated to go on CBS and and for a number of reasons all of them pretty much attributable to Charles Schultz first off it didn't have a laugh track and in the middle 1960s every sitcom had a laugh track it was unthinkable to do a 30-minute comedy show without a laugh track but Charles Schultz refused he said it was an insult to the audience and if you can believe it the network hated the music Okay, the music of a Charlie Brown Christmas. Um, you know, the suits at uh, CBS thought that the jazz music score by Vince Guaraldi was too sophisticated for a children's program. And, and of course, that soundtrack includes the iconic Peanuts theme. I mean, you can hear it in your head right now. Um, what else? Guaraldi's gentle jazz arrangement of O Christmas Tree. Uh, the original song, Christmas time is here. And, and uh, subsequently, they made a studio album, A Charlie Brown Christmas by the Vince Guaraldi Trio. And not only was it a smash hit record, but it remains today the biggest selling jazz album of all time. Okay? And of course, uh, those songs that I just mentioned are, are on every radio station's Christmas playlist. CBS, though, they didn't like the music. They also didn't like that uh, they used real children rather than professional voice actors. Uh, and they thought it was amateurish. But again, it was Schultz who insisted that real children and the voices of real children lent that program an air of authenticity. And of course, one of the most endearing things about A, a Charlie Brown Christmas and, and all the many Peanuts programs to follow it is the precious voices of real children. You know, the, the youngest among the original cast couldn't read. And so director Bill Melendez would uh, read the dialogue out loud and have them repeat after him, just line by line for the whole script. And all of the subsequent TV uh, specials and the Peanuts movies and all that use that same technique. But the thing that the network was the most concerned about, you may not be surprised, was the Bible reading. As everybody knows, <clears throat> when poor Charlie Brown cries out, can't anybody tell me what Christmas is all about? Little Linus Van Pelt answers, sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about, and proceeds to recite Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14 from the King James Bible. And there's, you know, and that, of course, is, is beautiful all by itself, especially in the voice of a child. But there's something subtle about the recitation that's easy to miss. The entire show, all throughout the, the, the special up to that point, it's been peppered with jokes about the fact that uh, thumb-sucking Linus still carries a security blanket. You know, he will not be parted from it, even uh, for the Christmas play. He tells his sister Lucy, well, this is one Christmas shepherd who's going to keep his trusty blanket with him. But when he gets to Luke 2, verse 10, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. He drops the blanket and says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Tis Christ the Lord. Only after he concludes with the words, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men, does he retrieve the blanket. And then he says, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Now, it turns out that the, really, the tight production schedule was uh, a lucky break for Schultz because they only had three months to go from you know, the concept to write and produce 
the whole show, you know, finished product. And by the time they were done, the network and the advertising agency and Coca-Cola had already been promoting the show in TV Guide. So Schultz had leverage, and he knew it, and he refused to capitulate on these various creative elements, especially the Bible reading. That was non-negotiable. And so the network executives had no choice but to air the special as Schultz intended it. Uh, But they were convinced it was going to be a rating disaster and told them so, said that they would never air it again, and that they would not be ordering any more peanut specials. And then on December the 9th, 1965, and I remember, um, because I watched it along with uh, half of the viewers in America, that half-hour special aired. It it preempted the Munsters, uh, came on right after Gilligan's Island, and to the surprise of the network executives, as I said, half of the country tuned in to see it. And we'll talk about... uh, Uh, the results of that, and the real reason for the season, as uh, articulated by Linus Van Pelt, when we return in just a few minutes with lots more no-nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. You know, in the last segment, I played that clip from Vincent Price. Uh, may he and the souls of all the faithful departed through the mercy of God rest in peace. Uh, and, and it was from a radio show from the 1950s, at which time the National Broadcasting Company thought it was a good idea to encourage people to go to church. And then by 1965, we see that executives at the Columbia Broadcasting Company were afraid to tell the Christmas story on a Christmas special. But Charles Schultz stuck to his guns, and as a result, like I said, not only did half of the viewers uh, in the country tune in for it, but uh, it was a uh, it was a commercial hit, but also a critical success. It won an Emmy. It won a Peabody Award. Um, entertainment critic Harriet Van Horn of the New York World Telegram said, "Linus's reading of the story of the Nativity was quite simply the dramatic highlight of the season, and Coca Cola was inundated." with positive letters. And that's why Charles Schultz was Charles Schultz. He intuitively understood the things that Americans cared about, the things that gave their life meaning. He was a longtime Sunday school teacher, and he understood that the reading of the Gospel of Luke was the centerpiece of the show because it was a centerpiece of American life. And 50 years later, it still is. And that's no nonsense. Now, when, when we come back uh, on the, in my next program, uh, Wednesday of next week, we will already have celebrated Christmas Day, which is, as we've said, the reason for the season. So I'd like to take a look now at the traditional um, gospel for Christmas. And actually, traditionally, there's three Christmas Masses. Uh, the first, the Mass of Nativity at midnight, and then the second Mass is at dawn, and then the third Mass is during Christmas Day. And each one of those uh, Masses has its own proper prayers and its own readings. So today we're going to look at the traditional gospel for the Mass of Christmas Day, which is the one that, you know, those of us who attend the traditional Mass, that's the one that's probably going to be the most available. And it is the story of the birth of Jesus from Luke 2, verses 1 through 7. 
In those days, a decree was issued by Caesar Augustus that a census should be taken throughout the entire world. This was the first such registration, and it took place when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Everyone traveled to his own town to be enrolled. Joseph, therefore, went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. He went to be registered together with Mary, his betrothed, who was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for her to have her child, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. Now Caesar Augustus was the ruler of a vast empire, which included Judea. Herod, uh, Herod the Great, father of Herod Antipas, who John the Baptist had so much trouble with, uh, was not an independent sovereign. Uh, he wasn't even a Jew. He was a puppet king uh, governing in the name of the Roman emperor, to whom he had to pay tribute of you know, part of the taxes he collected. And the enrollment of the subjects of the empire in Judea was made by tribes and families according to the Jewish custom. So each had to go to his own city, that is, the town where the family originated and in which the public register was kept. And Bethlehem was the town to which David belonged, and both Joseph and Mary, being descendants of David, their names had to be inscribed there. So Bethlehem lay about five miles to the south of Jerusalem, and the journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem was a difficult one of some 70 miles. And when Mary and Joseph arrived at Bethlehem, the scripture says there was no room for them in the inn. So they went to a cave or grotto outside the town, which was used as a stable in bad weather, and which was therefore fitted with a manger. Now today, over that grotto at which our Lord was born, there's a splendid church. Um, uh, the, the first church that was built there was built by uh, the Emperor Constantine uh, at the request of his mother, St. Helena. And in the grotto of the Nativity, um, 32 lamps were kept burning continuously for over a thousand years because our Lord was 33 at the time of the crucifixion. So the 32 lamps represented the years that would pass from his Nativity to his Passion. And tradition tells us that on that first Christmas, while Mary was absorbed in prayer, the child was born to her. See, it's one of my pet peeves with most of the, uh, the Jesus movies is that Mary is portrayed as undergoing the pain of childbirth, which, of course, is one of the curses of original sin from which we know she was uh, miraculously preserved. She never had the stain of original sin, and as we know, she remained a virgin after the birth of Christ as before. And the Roman Catechism describes the birth of Christ in this way. It describes it as, quote, wonderful beyond expression or conception. He is born of his mother without any diminution of her maternal virginity, and as he afterwards went forth from the sepulchre while it was closed and sealed, and entered the room in which his disciples were assembled, the doors being shut. Or not to depart from natural events which we witness every day, as the rays of the sun penetrate without breaking or injuring in the least the substance of glass. After a like but more incomprehensible manner, did Jesus Christ come forth from his mother's womb without injury to her maternal virginity, which, immaculate and perpetual, 
forms the just theme of our eulogy. This was the work of the Holy Ghost, who at the conception and birth of the Son so favored the Virgin Mother as to impart to her fecundity and yet preserve inviolate her perpetual virginity. Friend, this is not a fairy tale. This is not some romantic storybook understanding of the historical event. This is Catholic dogma. The divine maternity and perpetual virginity of Mary are de fide. They are non-negotiable. Remember, I always say a traditional Catholic is not necessarily one who goes exclusively to the traditional Latin Mass, but one who can say the act of faith and mean it. Oh my God, I believe all the truths which the Holy Catholic Church believes and teaches, because thou hast revealed them who canst neither deceive nor be deceived. And so, blessed Mary, virgin and mother, wrapped him in swaddling clothes with her own hands and laid him in the manger, and, full of faith, adored him as the Son of the Most High. And so, what else does the scriptural account of the birth of Christ teach us? Well, first, um, that the existence of divine providence. It was the, the prophet Micaiah who foretold that the Savior would be born in Bethlehem. But how unlikely was it that that prophecy would be fulfilled, seeing that Mary lived in Nazareth? And so it was the providence of God that directed the pagan emperor of Rome to order all his subjects be enrolled and that this decree should be executed in Judea at the very time when the birth of the Redeemer was at hand. Obedient to authority, Mary and Joseph journeyed to Bethlehem to inscribe their names in the city of David, and so unwittingly the Roman emperor was made to take part in the fulfillment of the prophecy that the Redeemer would be born in Bethlehem. Also we see his divinity, that Jesus Christ is his true man, born of the Virgin Mary. He is the child of Mary, that is, the son, the the descendant of David. But he's also true God, the Son of the Most High, as was announced by John uh, uh, to the Blessed Virgin by the angel Gabriel. And he shows himself to our sight at Holy Mass. For in the crib, we see nothing but a little child. Yet he reveals himself as God to our hearing, for his angels come and announce that this little child in the crib is the Savior. Christ the Lord. Therefore, we fall on our knees before the crib and adore the child, saying, I believe in God the Father Almighty and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. The eternal Son of God became man, and his omnipotence and majesty under the the form of a poor, helpless child. God the Son took the form of a servant to become us like us in all things except sin. And why? Why did he become man? Why did he suffer and die? Why did he wish to redeem us? Because it was he loved us, because he loved us with an infinite love, a, a divine love. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, etc. And as it says in 1 John 4:19, let us therefore love God because God first loved us. Scripture says that uh, Mary brought forth her firstborn son. Now, that does not suggest, as some might say, that Mary had other children. Rather, firstborn is a legal term uh, that has nothing to do uh, with a son's social standing of, of, of right, or it rather has to do with a son's social standing and his right of inheritance, right? The firstborn is the inheritor. Um, 
uh, of the double portion. But it doesn't imply that Mary had other children after Jesus, only that she had none before him. And Scripture also refers to Jesus as the firstborn of God the Father, even though we know he is the only begotten Son of God. Uh, We celebrate the Nativity, of course, with the Feast of Christmas, as we've been talking about here. And it was the Knights of Columbus that coined the motto, Keep Christ in Christmas. And maybe you've seen the meme, it goes around the internet around this time of year, that says the best way to keep Christ in Christmas is to keep Mass in Christmas. And, you know, we celebrate uh, Christmas at this time each year because according to tradition, our Lord was born in the night between the 24th and 25th of December. So we keep Christmas on the 25th and on this great feast, as I mentioned before, uh, traditionally three masses may be said by the priest. And and once upon a time, pretty much every priest, I suppose, said three masses on this day. Uh, First of all, to give thanks to the three persons of the Trinity, who all cooperated in the incarnation of, of Christ, and to honor the threefold birth of Christ, his eternal birth in the bosom of the Father, his temporal birth of the Virgin Mother, and his spiritual birth in our hearts, which he occupies by his grace. And that's no nonsense. All right, we're going to come back with a a final segment of our last show before Christmas here uh, at No Nonsense Catholic and Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I want you to stay with us because I'm going to share when we come back uh, uh, perhaps a couple of personal stories about Christmas and, uh, and lots more. So stick around and we'll be right back. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Uh, talking about the birth of Jesus and the sobering thought that the sufferings of Jesus began with his nativity. That he became man in order to suffer for us and make satisfaction for our sins and to redeem us. And all of his life he suffered, beginning at his birth into the world in a state of poverty and humility. You know, for the Son of God to take on human nature at all, it would have been an infinite humiliation, even if he'd been born in a royal palace and laid on a silken cushion in a golden crib. But we know that he was born in a stable and laid in a manger. The son of David, the king of the universe, couldn't find any room in the city of David. Shut out from, uh, from the inn, he, um, his parents were driven to find refuge uh, among the beasts in a stable. And he was, you know, born wrapped in swaddling clothes, born in the stable, laid in the manger. As he said himself in Luke 9, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air nests, but the son of man hath not where to lay his head. No comfortable little bed for the baby Jesus, but a rude manger. As Bishop Necht uh, said, a piece of wood at his birth and a piece of wood at his death. That was all that Jesus received from this world. And he chose this poverty and humility to make satisfaction even from his birth for our sins of pride and, and you know, to give us an example of humility and self-denial and mortification. Because man fell by pride. Man fell because he desired the impossible, to, to be as God. And his fall was so deep into the bondage of Satan 
that he, that he fell into unimaginable sins and crimes. Uh, and to order, or in order to free us from sin and hell, God the Son became man like to us in all things except sin so that we might become the children of God once more. As a servant is not greater than his master, so if he suffered, so shall we. And that's no nonsense. Now, we have a little time left, uh, just a few minutes, and I wanted to share maybe one or two stories about Christmas past, which is to say my past. See, many years ago, long before I was Catholic, um, I was on the road with a band, and uh, we'd been out for weeks, and we were playing our last stop in, in a town up in the high desert. So it's you know relatively close to home, but but too far to, to be able to commute. And um, and one day it hit me that I would be home for Christmas, but I would not be home in time to go shopping for Christmas. And so I went out to to look for presents to to get my family. And I didn't have any steady girlfriend or anything at the time. And and I found a unique little gift shop. And and they didn't have any mass-produced items. Everything there was the work of some local artisan. So they had, you know, custom jewelry and and arts and crafty things and uh, various kind of expensive curios. And and after a few minutes, the lady behind the counter asked if I need any help. And I say, no, thanks. I'm I'm just looking for now. And, you know, I was raised to be polite and I thought nothing of it. And uh, after our little exchange, she steps into the back. Now, this is more than 40 years ago, and I was maybe, you know, 20 years old. And um, for a guy of that age and at that time, I was rolling in money, but I didn't look it. You know, I was in a rock band, so I was all long hair and blue jeans and and leather jacket. Uh, You know, but I know me, (laughs) so uh, I was oblivious to the fact that, uh, you know, she might be uncomfortable. Uh, You know, I didn't realize that I looked out of place in this high-end gift shop. Well, I found some cool stuff. I mean, my dad used to collect windmills, and I found a, a metal, handmade metal windmill. It was actually a music box. It was very cool. And I got my brother a, a shoehorn. He was always carrying a shoehorn on the road. And I got him one that was made out of tortoise shell that had a, a wooden handle that was you know, terminated in a carved horse's head so that you could uh, sit in a chair and use your shoehorn without bending over, right? It's a, it's a luxury item. I, and I found stuff like this for, for the whole family. Um, and anyway, um, you know, very classy, very unusual gifts. And in just a few minutes, I found something for everybody on my list. And I was overjoyed at, you know, the one-stop shopping. And right then from the back of the store comes this lady's husband who says, rather aggressive, what can I help you with? And I, I suddenly realized that, you know, maybe they're afraid I'm going to steal something or maybe rob the place. And my initial reaction was to be offended. But then I realized, you know, this guy is going to be really happy in a minute. So I asked all innocently, um, how much is that windmill? And he told me, you know, with an attitude, obviously expecting me to blanch at the price. But instead I said, oh, I'll take it. And as he got it down, I said, and I'll also take this and and one of these. And, and do you have a box for this? And can you gift wrap these for me? You know, and suddenly both he and his wife are all activity and they're yes, sir. And thank you, sir you know, until I bought presents for the whole family, hundreds of dollars worth. Uh, and, uh, and you can imagine how pleased they were, especially when I reached into my wallet and started counting out hundred dollar bills. And, you know, it was, it was a nice moment because it's maybe five in the evening. I'm, you know, the only customer. And I realized that a classy high end, uh, 
you know, place like that in a relatively small town probably doesn't, you know, it has a limited customer base. Let's put it that way. And, and what a nice surprise it must have been for them to find out that instead of, you know, the problem that they expected, that I was instead actually, you know, a Christmas gift for them. <laughs> and when I left with my armload of packages, uh, you know, we all said Merry Christmas with genuine good cheer. And I, I tell the story because, you know what, that's about the most you can expect for Christmas when you're not really a Christian. You know, I remember my first Christmas in my own apartment. My brother came over and said, oh, you know, where's your Christmas tree? And I said, I'm not going to get a tree. You know, even if I had one, I have nothing to decorate it with. And so the next time he came over, he brought me a little box of of a dozen miniature Christmas bulbs, you know, the little balls you hang on the tree. And um, I didn't, you know, have a tree, but I had a cactus that was about a foot tall. You know, when, you know the, the typical cactus like you see in the cartoons, you know, it looks like a man standing with his arms raised. And, you know, like I say, it was only about a foot tall, but the spines were maybe half an inch to an inch long. And so I hung the little balls <laughs> on the spines of my... And I had my Christmas cactus, okay? Now, fast forward to this year. Now, these days, I do the majority of my Christmas shopping online. But the other day, I found myself in Huntington Beach uh, with an hour on my hands after dropping my son off at work. And I thought, wow, Old World is just a couple of minutes from here. Now, if you're not from Orange County, Old World Village is a, uh, well, it's virtually synonymous with Oktoberfest is what it is. Uh, it's a place looks like a small European village and there's a, there's an old Catholic church and there's a hotel and so forth. And it's, um, you know, like, like I say, like a little village with these winding cobblestone streets lined with specialty shops and restaurants and whatnot. Very charming, very, um, well, old world. And, uh, since it's Christmas time, they're having an arts and crafts, uh, festival with the vendors lining the streets with lots and lots of handmade goods. And, you know, so I went through and I didn't really find anything to my taste, but I stopped in at the bakery slash deli to see if they had any of my favorite German beer because I drink this dark, bitter Dunkel, they call it in German. And there was an older German lady there with a little table set up with, uh, and she gave me a sample of something, which is called ear liqueur, uh, which is German egg liquor. Or, or uh, you know, it's made from egg yolks and cream and sugar and, and you know, spices and vanilla and so forth. Um, and also alcohol. Okay, it's like eggnog, but it already has the alcohol and it's like 60 proof right out of the bottle. So I was a little surprised <laughs> when I took my taste. But, um, you know, I asked about it. Do you have to refrigerate it after you open it? No, you don't. Some people like it chilled. Some people drink it over the rock. Some people drink it hot. They put it in coffee. They pour it over pastries, which sounded really good. Uh, put it on ice cream and so forth. So it's this very, uh, you know, uh, uh, handy kind of uh, thing for the holiday times. But, you know, I thought to myself, at my house, you know, my wife doesn't like eggnog or hard liquor. So, you know, I'm probably the only one that's ever going to drink it. So I thought, I'm not going to spend, you know, 40 bucks on a, a whole bottle of this stuff. Uh, but she had some other bottles there. And uh, I, I, I said, can you pour me out a sample uh, of some of this? And she poured it out of a coffee carafe, something called uh, Glühwein, which is mulled wine, right? Spiced red wine. And they serve it hot. Uh, and, and it, well, man, was it good. <laughs> and, and I tried two different kinds. I told the lady, these are both good, but I like this one best. And she says, oh, me too. And so I walked out with a bottle of Glühwein, uh, and it's called, uh, 
King Frosch, King Frog, right? So I, I'm, I'm assuming there's an old folktale behind the, the frog with the crown, and we'll find out. Uh, and if I find out, I'll let you know anyway. And I um, told the kids about it. Um, it was my birthday yesterday, and uh, my oldest daughter, very keen to try the mulled wine on Christmas Eve. And I, I hope that uh, we might be starting a new tradition in the old household. The thing is, I've all my life I've enjoyed the Christmas season. You know, good times with the family, the the seasonal baked goods, Christmas dinner, the decorations, presents, of course. But as we've been talking about all through the program, the reason for the season is the nativity of Christ. And I remember when my wife Betty and I were first dating, our first Christmas, she asked, "What do you like about Christmas?" And I said, "You know, what I I always love to see the Norelco Santa." See, I don't know if they still play it or not, but there used to be this TV commercial that featured a you know stop-motion Santa Claus riding an electric shaver as though it was a sled, uh, you know, through the snow. And on the screen, they'd flash the logo, and it was spelled Noelco. And the announcer says, even our name says Merry Christmas. Well, I told Betty, boy, when I see that commercial, I realize it's really Christmas time. That and the December issue of Playboy. And she was horrified. <laughs> And I'm like, what? You know, what does Christmas mean to you? And and she told me how she typically thinks of Jesus uh, in his earthly ministry, his preaching, his miracles, his passion. But at Christmas, it would come home to her that he became a man to sacrifice himself for our salvation, that he came as a helpless baby, that Mary and Joseph held God in their arms. And I thought to myself, gee, I didn't know Catholics were so religious. <laughs> But for the last 26 Christmases, the greatest gift for me has been God's gift to me, the gift of my Catholic faith. It's transformed everything, and Christmas means so much more to me than it ever did or ever could have before. And the indispensable part of that gift for which I am truly thankful are the Catholics in my life, my wife Betty, uh, Father Benjamin Fama, God rest his soul, Tim Staples, and others who loved me enough cared about me enough to share their Catholic faith with me. And that, for me, was the ultimate gift and the ultimate Christmas gift. And I am still so thankful even today. Well, next week, uh, it's going to be the the last week of the year. And so we'll probably do a, a year's retrospective, talk a little bit about some of the reactions that our last podcast got when I talked about... Uh, the theme of It's Better in Latin. Some people vehemently disagree. We'll talk about that. And uh, in the meantime, for everybody at VMPR, I wish you a Merry Christmas and a blessed New Year. Thanks for listening. And may God richly bless you and your family.